We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stay standing for our opening song.
turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. On this uh, weekend leading into Thanksgiving week, we want to focus our attention on our thankfulness to the Lord, giving Him praise for everything. And as I was considering what New Testament scripture I would want to read, I had several in mind and this wasn't one of them. And then uh, someone convinced me that this is a perfect prayer of thanksgiving for us. You may know it as the Magnificat. This is Mary's song. After finding out that she would give birth to the Savior. And uh, the first couple of verses are pretty specific to her own gratitude for her situation. But as we, um, 
as we read through her entire song, her entire prayer here, she is extending thanksgiving very much reflective of the Old Testament psalmists and very much what we should have in our own hearts. And Mary said in verse 46, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we consider these words from Mary, and as we consider the doxology that we just sang and the songs of your faithfulness and our gratitude that we're about to sing. We marvel at how wondrous you are. That you are so vast and great and holy and glorious that you are beyond our wildest imaginations. And yet, Father, we marvel far more at your grace toward us at your mercy because you are holy and we are anything but. And if we're honest with ourselves and we've seen you, then we know that we are deserving of your wrath, not of your blessing. Yet, Father, because you have offered us life in your Son, that you have deigned to call us your children by uniting us to him. We have the audacity to come before you and to ask your blessing. Knowing that our hope, our help, our salvation can only come by your hand, can only come from your grace, we have only to be still to know that you are God and to rest in your character. Father, make us keenly, even painfully aware that the only way that we can have a relationship with you is through the Son. And the only way that we can be changed, that we can be transformed into your righteousness is by your spirit in us. Protect us, Father, from thinking that somehow we deserve your blessings. 
Fill us with rejoicing and gratitude, recognizing that every breath, every sunrise, it's all your grace. We have nothing that we have not received from you. And Father, when we recognize this in the midst of our gratefulness, we also own our dependence on you. We have so many needs that we cannot, we cannot provide for. We strive and we struggle in our flesh and our efforts are futile. But Lord, when you are with us, you provide good things. You take care of us. Help us, Lord, even now in this moment, not just in this season of Thanksgiving, but every day, to live with Thanksgiving and to trust your sufficiency for our provision and our protection. Lord, we lift up those among us who are hurting and struggling right now, some with physical needs, some with overwhelming grief. Lord, we think even now of the homegoing of our dear sister Helen this weekend. Father, we pray for those who are left behind that you would lift them in their grief that we might not grieve as those who have no hope. Lord, we lift up those who are facing the slow and painful decline of aging parents and friends. Lord, we lift up one another as you bring each person to mind, knowing that we each have needs that come up every day and we need one another to pray together as a team, as a family. Now, Father, in this moment, we place ourselves in your hands, grateful that you hear us. And we give thanks to you, Lord, for you are good. And your love, your compassion endures forever. We pray these things in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, and for your glory alone. Amen. Stand, please. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. For He is good, He is above all things. His love endures forever. Sing praise, sing praise. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm.
seat please. Children fifth grade and under you can head on downstairs for junior church. Well we are back in numbers 14 today. Uh, this will be our last time in the book of Numbers until after the new year. And so we'll take a little break to um, celebrate 
the coming of our Lord, the first coming, looking forward to the second. But uh, today, as we wrap up Numbers chapter 14, um, we actually are, for the first time in a little while, pressing into a new part of the narrative, a new uh, part of the story. Before we read the text together, let's just set the stage, remind us where we are. God has chosen for himself a people uh, centuries before this time when he called Abram out of his land, gave him the name Abraham, and said, I'm going to make a, a great people, many nations out of you. The, all the nations will be blessed through you. I'm going to bring you into a land and I'm going to deliver this land to you. Many generations later, God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt. He uses mighty signs and wonders to do this. We know the story of the Exodus. They come out having witnessed God's mighty hand, miraculously delivering them. They spend a year at the foot of Mount Sinai encamped, receiving the law from the Lord, being instructed on how to live as a people holy, set apart for him. And almost from the very beginning, they seem to grumble against the Lord and the difficulties that they have in following him. But God has chosen them to be his. He has set them apart for himself. And he has promised to deliver them. And so as long as they basically keep their mouths shut, as long as they live in, a, in an attitude of thanksgiving, trusting the Lord to carry them through, he continues to bless and deliver them despite the, fa the fact that they prove over and over again to be a stiff-necked and stubborn people. I don't know about you, but... I can really identify with that. If it weren't for God's stubborn love, for his love that endures forever, I couldn't stand here. I would have no hope. Because in myself, I am beyond weak-willed and failing. So they get now to the, to the very edge of the promised land. God is about to bring them in. He's set them up. He's organized the entire nation. He's prepared them uh, for military conquest. He uh, took a census of those who were military age and over so that he could organize them, put them in a position. He placed himself at the center of the nation. In the book of Exodus, God is outside the camp meeting with Moses and, and Joshua in the tent of meeting in the book of Numbers, he has moved the tent into what is now referred to very often as the tabernacle. And the tent of meeting, this holy of holies, where God meets with Moses. This is where God's presence is manifest. Now it's in the center of the camp. And all of them are not only encamped around it, but they are encamped facing the tabernacle. God is at the center of everything that they do. It's not an accident. He's trying to drive this home in every aspect of their lives, in every aspect of our lives, of all who belong to the Lord. Every part of us is to be ordered around him. Now, as they've gotten here, they 
see that the land is indeed flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's better than they could have dreamed. They have fortified cities and, and houses and vineyards. And all of these are going to be theirs because God has told them already that he's going to deliver them. He's already told them that there would be people there encamped and God would defeat them and hand this over to them. But when they see the blessings, they also see these tribal chieftains and armies and they're afraid. There are among them giants in the land, men of great size and renown. And that seems to be just too big an obstacle for the God who parted the Red Sea and delivered them from the mightiest army known to man to be able to handle. So they decide they want to reject God's man. They want to reject God's plan. They want to reverse the exodus and go back. Now we reach the culmination of this part of the story in Numbers 14, verses 36 and following. So we'll, we'll look at uh, 36 to 45, and here's what the Lord tells us. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went in to explore the land, only Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh survived. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they went up toward the high hill country. We have sinned, they said. We will go up to the place the Lord promised. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up, because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies, for the Amalekites and Canaanites will face you there, because you have turned away from the Lord. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the high hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. This is the word of God read in your hearing. Let us receive it in faith. Father, as we study your word today, may our study be worship. Help us, Father, to receive your word as exactly that, your word, fully inspired by your spirit, written by human hands under your influence, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient for all that we need. Shape us by this word, Lord. Let us be transformed. 
protect us from the opinion of any human. Lord, let no one here have their eyes on the vessel, but only on the word that you deliver. Father, keep us from being stiff-necked and stubborn. Don't let us harden our hearts as they did at Meribah and Massah. We want to know you. And we do want your blessing, Lord. But if you don't go with us, we don't want any of it. So be among us now, Lord, as you have promised. Open our minds, open our eyes, open our ears and hearts, and change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as, uh, as we look at this story, there are some, some just crazy things that go on here. So they're scared to death to go in when God says, don't sweat it, I got this. God is going to carry them. Now they're ready to go in without God to try to somehow make up for the fact that they rejected God. So they're going to dishonor God by trying to do what God promised to do on their own strength. As if somehow their effort could possibly make up for their sin. Or as if their effort could do what God had promised to do in the first place. It was doomed to failure from the beginning. This whole mess was a disaster. Our core reality for today is that disaster is inevitable when we pursue God's blessings by our own efforts. Disaster is inevitable when we pursue God's blessings by our own efforts. Now, as we walk through the story from the very beginning, in fact, if we go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, the point of the story has always been a relationship with God. It has never been anything else from creation in the garden to even the redemption that God would bring following the fall when, when everything, you know, went to pot, as my grandma used to say. This whole disaster of sin breaking our relationship with God was not about the individual act itself. It wasn't that eating a piece of fruit was such a horrible thing. It was disobeying God. Wicked unbelief, which broke that relationship and severed Adam and Eve and all of us ever since from the source of life, the giver of life himself. Therefore, sin inevitably, it, it's only logical, we should have been able to see this without even having the book in front of us, sin inevitably brings death. And that's what we've had ever since, death disorder, chaos, entropy. Now here, we're just reliving the whole silliness of trying to do things ourselves anyway. 
Think about what happened in Genesis 3. God had already given Adam and Eve a perfect environment. Perfect. All their needs were met. Complete pleasure, no shame, no downside, no good time with a bad side effect, none of those things. God did that. They contributed nothing. He allowed them to participate. Some interloper shows up, and the snake says to them, uh, you know, I think God's holding back. You could, you could probably do better on your own. If you, if you just eat this fruit, then you'll be as wise as God. You'll be just like God. God was already making them just like God. And when they tried to do it on their own, it wrecked everything. And they forfeited what was already going to be theirs. In the same way, when they get to the promised land, the Israelites, by trusting their own reasoning rather than what God had said, end up forfeiting what was already going to be theirs. I don't see how God's plan is going to work. There's giants in the land. We can't handle this. So we're going back. So what you just did in trying to do things your way without God was guarantee your failure. Guarantee now that the one who was going to deliver you into the promised land now will specifically keep you from the promised land. And the fears that you had about your children being prey will be true of you and your children will inherit the land. Not a good plan. So then, God deals with the spies, the, the scouts that he sends in, and the ten who brought the bad report and influenced everyone else to ensure this grumbling attitude. Now, understand, the grumbling attitude was already present, and we've seen it in story after story. But instead of coming in and giving a warning and an encouragement as Caleb and Joshua did, don't rebel against God. He's got this. Yep, there's giants and whatever. It's just more victory for God. We're going to go do this. They are like bread for us. We're going to devour them. Just please don't rebel against God. So the first thing they do is rebel against God, right? Which seems an awful lot like how we handle temptation a lot of the time. You can hear that voice telling you, don't, just don't, don't, don't do that. That's the one thing you don't want to do. And what do we do? We run headlong into it, pretending that we're resisting, pretending that we're being dragged, kicking, and streaming, but we're actually running into it, fully aware and willing. So the 10 spies come back. They've influenced everybody to, to uh, participate together in this sinfulness, except for the, the two that didn't, Joshua and Caleb. And God deals with them. And he deals with them immediately and dramatically by striking them down with the plague. And that phrase, before the Lord, shows up <clears throat> excuse me, a number of times in uh, these stories to emphasize the fact that this is in the presence of God, before the face of God, as God sees them, God is in this judgment. And they die before the Lord. 
Caleb and Joshua, only ones who don't. Well, the people seeing this obviously are like, well, that seems bad. You know, don't really like that. We messed up, right? Like the, the disobedient teenager who does exactly the opposite of what mom and dad say until mom and dad finally drop the hammer. And then it's like, no, 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 I, I, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll, go, I'll do it right now. Too late, son. Doesn't work that way. That's kind of what happens here. Hey, you know, I, I know we, we didn't go in, but we're going to go in now. Now that God said to turn back, now we're going to go in. Man, you just doubled down on your disobedience. You didn't obey him when he said to go in. Now you don't obey him when he says to turn back. They could have fallen on their faces and said, Lord, we've sinned. We don't want to be apart from you. Whatever you do, Lord, we're going to trust you. We've learned from this. We don't want to, to walk away from you anymore. They didn't do that. Instead, they saw that they had sinned, and they sinned some more. Let's go. Moses says, God's not going with you. We don't care. We want the promised land. We're... So basically what you're saying is you don't need God. It's not about him. It's not about your relationship with him. It's about getting the goods. It's about getting the stuff. It's about avoiding the punishment. You don't want God to strike you with the plague. So you think by your own efforts now, apart from him, this is going to work out. Good luck with that. So they go. And they do it. And in their presumption, I love the way the NIV puts it, they get beat down all the way to Hormah. It's interesting because back in Exodus, before all this happens, we have a kind of a contrasting situation when God says, go, but I'm not going with you. Because if I go with you... I, Y'all are so stiff-necked, I might just kill you along the way. So I'm not going with you. You go. And Moses says, Lord, if, if you're not with us, we don't want to go. In fact, turn back to Exodus chapter 33. Skip over the book of Leviticus. When you get to Exodus 33, they've already come out of Egypt. They've already gone up and received the Ten Commandments, had the, the big uh, golden calf debacle. God has, um, has pronounced judgment on them. Moses is, uh, <laughs> is kind of fired up, so he smashes the tablets in, in condemning them. Let's look at the first part of chapter 33. In fact, uh, notice what happens. This is after the golden calf, right before 33. The last verse of chapter 32. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've got a a plague thing going on. We're going to at least temporarily think we learn our lesson. And then he continues. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people who brought you up out of Egypt. And go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. This is where they're going now. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Stop for a second. Okay, 
right here in Exodus 33, this is before they ever received the, the rest of the law, haven't gone through the book of, uh, of Leviticus yet, haven't gone through the, the ordering of the people yet that will take place in the beginning of Numbers that prepares them. This is already already a promise from God. You're going to go in there, you're going to have all these ites in there, and I'm going to send an angel before you, and, there, and the angel's going to drive out these tribes before you. You will win, you will have the land. Seems like this is something that you should be hopeful about, right? God says it. It's as good as done. Count on it. And yet we still have the book of Numbers. Okay, so I'm going to send an angel before you and drive out all these ites. Uh, Verse 3, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the Tent of Meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the, temp, to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Notice it's outside the camp. In Numbers, it's in the midst of the camp. And whenever, whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the, at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay, <coughs> excuse me, stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you, and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Now, okay, the Lord's going to respond here in verse 14. But just think about the contrast of what we just read in Numbers 14 and the attitude of Moses here. Lord, we don't need the land so much as we need you. Teach me your ways. I want to know you. I want to reflect you. I want this people, your people, to look like you. And the Lord says in verse 14, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else, notice this question, what else will distinguish us and your people, or distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? It's the presence of God in his people that sets his people apart from everybody else on the earth. Moses gets it. It's not the promised land. It's the presence of God 
that results in the promised land, but it, those blessings come as a result, as an overflow of the relationship. Moses sees that. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Understand, of course, he is using what we call anthropomorphisms to, to use uh, thing, terms that we can relate to to describe infinite reality that we cannot. All right, so in Exodus 33, Moses is, is the, the people weep. Moses is saying, Lord, if you don't go with us, none of the rest of it matters. N nothing else matters. We need you. Your presence is everything. In Numbers 14, Moses says, don't go because the Lord's not going with you. You turned your back on him, and now he's leaving you to your own devices. You wanted life without God? You got it, and all that comes with it. And they're like, now we're good. Let's go in. Totally disregarding the, the entire prayer that Moses expresses in Exodus 33. Totally disregarding everything the Lord has taught them from the beginning. Everything about their existence is centered on him, on his presence. Everything about the law is to drive that reality home to them. You're not like everybody else. You belong to me. Therefore, you live different as a sign that you belong to me. So here we are. Disaster is inevitable when we pursue God's blessings by our own efforts. This story foreshadows the gospel, and it reflects the principle of salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I hope you'll see that as we go through. To kind of get a glimpse of it, take a look at what Paul says in Romans 10, 1 to 13, about his longing for the salvation of his people. I'll give you a minute to turn there, going all the way to the New Testament, past the familiar Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, past Acts. The first of the letters is the book of Romans. Chapter 10 follows directly on the heels of chapter 9 and precedes chapter 11. Verse 3 of this section, by the way, is our memory verse for today. Here's what Paul writes. He's been describing the unbelief of his people Israel. He's been describing God's uh, active role in, in choosing whom he will save. Now he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them 
as one of them. I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That picture of Israel there describing the fact that they were seeking to live by the law and find righteousness by the law and be, uh, be saved by the law, that picture that that is not the righteousness that God has in mind does not negate the law. It says that the point was never the law in the first place. The point was the faith, the relationship. That's why prophets like Habakkuk would say, the just shall live by faith. That's why in Romans 1, Paul would say the just would live by faith. There's a righteousness that comes from God, and it is by faith from first to last. It's only by faith. Now, that faith that gives true righteousness on the inside is what produces righteous life, righteous action on the outside. But if I try to have righteous actions, righteous deeds, I try to do things that I think are pleasing to God or keep some external law on the outside from my flesh with my strength and willpower, good luck with that. What I actually am doing is in the very thing that I think is good, I'm doing evil. Because the point from the dawn of creation was a relationship with our creator God. And if I'm doing even good things apart from our creator God, then it is, by definition, sin. It's an insult to him. If we think of it this way, maybe it'll help. If the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, then doesn't it stand to reason that anything that isn't that is sinful? If I think of anything else ahead of God, if I prioritize anything else ahead of God, if I try to 
cure cancer and feed the poor and do all the good deeds and I, I give all of my income to St. Jude's and all these wonderful things that I can do and I do it apart from a relationship with him. It's, it's worthless. It only serves to anger him because all the good we can do in this life at its very best stays here in this temporal realm when we leave it. We're not made for this life. This is just the, the, opening, the opening page of the great novel. All right. Before I get too excited and start going way off track here, I want to get, get back to it. All right, so let's, let's take a walk through this text and the principles that, that uh, we find here. First thing, <clears throat> those who lead others astray receive special judgment. All right, so we're, we're back in numbers. You can see these points and write them down. Those who lead others astray receive special judgment. Notice in verses 36 to 38, all right? The spies come back. God strikes them with a plague and they die before the Lord in dramatic fashion. So much so that all the people mourn bitterly. Remember that these are leaders. These scouts were chosen from among the leaders of the tribes. So they're well known, they're influential, they have responsibility to lead and guide the people, and what they actually do is they lead the people straight to hell, so to speak. Those who have the responsibility of leading and lead wrongly lead people astray have a special judgment reserved for them we can recognize and even uh, we can recognize what's going on in this situation everybody's going to perish in the wilderness but these influencers perish dramatically here Hebrews 13 17 uh, indicates that our leaders are given to keep a watch over us. We should uh, respect them for that because they will give an account to God for us. Leaders are accountable for their leadership to God. James 3.1 says that teachers are judged more strictly, so we shouldn't presume to just put ourselves in that position and take it lightly. Ezekiel 3.18 is a, a warning. It's a warning to the prophet specifically, but by extension to all who lead, that when the Lord gives you a warning to call the wicked to turn from their ways and you don't give it, their blood is on your head. Later on in, in uh, Ezekiel 33, he'll, he'll emphasize it and clarify it and say, if I put a watchman on the wall and the watchman doesn't sound the warning, that's a real danger. And the watchman is the one who answers. If he does sound the warning and the people don't respond, well, then their blood is their responsibility. But if he does, uh, but if he doesn't, if he fails to tell them the truth of what God has said, he's going to answer to God for that. And their deaths are on his shoulders. Matthew 18, 6, 
a familiar passage to many of you. Jesus says, if any one of you causes one of these little ones to sin, it's better to have a millstone tied around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. The Lord reserves special judgment for those who lead others astray. In Matthew 24, verse 11, and really that section, um, I won't have you look it up, but uh, in that section in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about the things that we will see <clears throat> as things go from bad to worse before the end comes. People running around even then saying, the end is near and, and you know, the Messiah is coming. He's, he's telling them, look, this is what's going to happen. People are going to go around. They're going to say, you know, Jesus, the Messiah is here, Messiah is there, you know, all that kind of stuff. Don't get all caught up in all the end times foolishness. Don't get caught up in all the false prophets saying this is here and, and you know, th this is the time and here's the date that Jesus is coming back. He tells them this before he ever leaves. But here's what he does say. That false teachers will lead many astray and increased lawlessness will cause the love of many to grow cold. Boy, that sure sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? My concern is not for an immoral world. The world's always been immoral. I mean, let's not fool ourselves. Just because we have a period of time throughout all of human history, there's a, a blip of time where uh, the society seems to look a little bit like Christianity. That doesn't mean that the world is better. In the 20th century, this wonderful time of, of Christian influence and American influence, there was more death and destruction than in all previous centuries. There were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than in all previous centuries of the church. The world wasn't better. The world doesn't get better or worse. It's bad, period. But the church... Those of us who call ourselves his, we have a responsibility to be the salt and light in this world. We just talked about this in youth group last, last week in 412. We were talking about the fact that our friends and neighbors are walking around in the dark and they can't see where they're going. And if you have somebody else who's in darkness leading them, then the blind lead the blind and they both end up in the ditch. But we've been called to be ambassadors. We've been called to carry the light. And if we lead them astray, that's a problem. Where else will they find truth? Where else will they find hope? So when we have churches and pastors who decide that the things that are socially acceptable are more important than what the scripture says, God reserves special judgment for those who lead others astray. I'm going to leave that there. Those who lead others astray receive special judgment. Notice next, recognition is not the same as repentance. Recognition is not the same as repentance. Pick up with verse 39. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, this terrible thing that's happened in the judgment upon these, these spies, when Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Okay, there's an emotional uh, 
response here, a, a visceral response. Our loved ones, our leaders, these spies that we have trusted, they are dead. And God struck them. God made them dead. God killed them. There's a grief. I don't question that the grief is real, but the response isn't right. Verse 40, early the next morning, they went up toward the high hill country. That's where these folks are encamped. That's where they were supposed to go in the first place, and they wouldn't do it. Early the next morning, they went up to the high, toward the high hill country. We have sinned, they said. We will go up to the place the Lord promised. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. There is a, a, a danger here. Recognition is not the same as repentance. We can recognize and even regret our sin without repenting. We can lament the consequences without lamenting the fact that we have betrayed the Lord and broken his heart. James 2.19 reminds us that we can believe in God and all that does is put us at the same level as the demons. You believe in one God? Great. So do the demons and they shudder. The devil has perfect theology. He knows the truth. He just rejects it, doesn't submit to it. It's the same thing for us. We can recognize we can say the right things. We can even go through the right motions and yet not repent. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul has been uh, kind of uh, rebuking the Corinthian church. He, this, in the, um, letter of the, second, the second letter of the Corinthians, which is really at least his third, he's telling them, look, I already called you on this stuff. Why haven't you fixed it? All right, and the the good part is that some of them have repented. He'll have to deal with more as they're going through it, but he says it grieves me. It breaks my heart that I caused you sorrow, but not really, because that sorrow led to repentance. That sorrow changed you. Here's what here's what seven verse ten says. Second Corinthians seven ten. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That's where these guys are. They recognize that they sinned. That's not the same as turning from that sin and going God's way. They are still stuck in this idea that there's a righteousness that they can provide by doing their own thing. Just as Romans 10.3 said, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In your programs, Aaron's put together a, a, an image for our memory verse. And if you look at it, you'll see there's a crossroads there. One road leading to darkness and one road leading to light. We get to make a decision every day. If we are going to pursue the righteousness that God supplies in himself, by his grace, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, 
or if we're going to try to do things according to our own effort. If we're going to, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we're going to try to make up for our mistakes, that isn't repentance. Anybody can regret making a mistake. That's not hard. It's kind of like the you know, little league coach that yells at the kid for striking out. Man, come on, you let us down. Well, duh, like he didn't know that. Great coaching. Of course he let you down. He knows that. Anybody can recognize that I made a mistake and a mistake is a bad thing. That's different than knowing what to do about it. That's different than repentance and saying, this is a bad path. I'm going back to God's path. Compare the difference between Peter in Matthew 26 and Judas in Matthew 27. Peter, when he's overcome with remorse for his sin, weeps bitterly. But he stays with the disciples. He deals with his grief over his sin. It breaks his heart, but he doesn't abandon what the Lord has called him to. Judas, on the other hand, realizes what happened. And he's overwhelmed with remorse and he weeps bitterly and he throws the money back into the, the temple and they're like, that's your problem, not ours. And Judas, in his remorse, recognizes his sin, but he doesn't repent. Instead, he hangs himself. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow brings death. Recognition is not the same as repentance. Notice also, Penance without presence is presumption. Penance without presence is presumption. Now there's a difference between penance and penitence. Penance, the doing of things, to show that I'm sorry, the doing of things very often in our minds, when we do that without God's blessing, we try to work out making up for our sin. Now, that's not necessarily inherently what penance means, but that's very often the way we look at it. It's very often what we're doing, trying to pay or to make up for or to make amends for or set right sin. Penitence is the repentant attitude that says, I hate what I did. Not I hate the cost of it, of course you hate the cost of it. I hate what I did. I hate that this breaks God's heart. I hate that this separates me from his person, from his presence, that it, this breaks our fellowship. And I can't walk with him rightly while there's this thing between us. That's the difference. Penance without presence is the action without the relationship. Now, if I have the relationship, then I can do the things. If my heart has changed, I can do the things. They're not gaining me salvation. They're not gaining me points with God. And they're certainly not going to undo what was done before. But out of gratitude for his grace, I can respond with changed actions. Notice what they do in 41 to 43. They want to go up and do this. And Moses says, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. 
Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. For the Amalekites and Canaanites will face you there. Because you've turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. His presence will not be with them, so their act of penance, so to speak, trying to make up for what they blew the first time, is presuming upon God. It's arrogant. It relies on our own flesh. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. Trying to make up for our sin by our own righteousness instead of by trusting in the righteousness God provides is doubly doubly unfaithful. It presumes upon God. It belittles him. And it elevates our own goodness and strength. Romans 1.17 says, For in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, here he quotes Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. Romans 3, verses 20 to 22. As soon as I say Romans 3, a lot of you are thinking already of Romans 3, 23. Yes, that, but this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Then he goes on to say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The righteousness from God is by faith. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Then again in Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9, Paul, having having spoken of his earthly uh, strengths that he has no regard for any longer, He says here in verses 8 and 9 of Philippians 3, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Now, as he says that, you need to keep keep in mind, this is a letter of rejoicing. Paul is, is joyful in this letter, but he's saying, For the sake of the Lord, I have lost all things. If I could put in a little editorial comment that I believe is in Paul's mind. I believe it's the tone of what he's saying here. For whose sake I have lost all things. Hallelujah. I am so glad to have lost the things that don't matter. That was just extra weight. Happy to dump it. This is Paul's minimalist mentality for those of you who who want that. He's saying all, all this other stuff. I thought it was a treasure. All it was was an anchor. I can't wait to be rid of that stuff. It is for for his sake that he's lost all of these things. Here we go. Lost my place there for a second. I'm back. For whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. Other rendering is dung that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What Paul is saying here is very much the same attitude that Moses had in Exodus 33. God, I don't need your stuff. I need you. I don't need a promised land. I need your presence. I don't need to have all these things of life. I need Jesus. I want to know him. I want to enter into that intimacy with him. That's greater than anything else that I ever hoped for before. Our best efforts at righteousness without God are like filthy rags, according to Isaiah 64, 6. Do we really think we can wipe away the filth of our faithlessness by scrubbing with filthy rags? Penance without presence is presumption. Moses and Paul give us this picture that it's the presence that makes any kind of penance even matter at all. And with his presence, we don't need the penance. He's already taken it from us. All we have to do is be still and God will fight our battles for us. He sent Christ to save us. Not when we gained enough points to merit it, but while we were still sinners. If our best efforts at righteousness are filthy rags on our own, that brings us to the next point. Our best efforts are worthless without the Lord. Our best efforts are worthless without the Lord. Back in Numbers 14, verses 44 to 45. Nevertheless, <laughs> Moses gives him this warning. We don't care. Nevertheless, in their presumption, because they were trying to do works without the relationship. They were trying to, to do this thing to make up for their sin, penance without presence. In their presumption, they went up toward the high hill country. Though neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp. They didn't have Moses, God's representative. They didn't have the ark, the symbol of God's presence with them. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. In Deuteronomy 1, as Moses is retelling this, you don't have to turn there, but as Moses is retelling this, it's worth reading on your own time, so that's your homework. But uh, in Deuteronomy 1, Moses says, you thought it was an easy thing to go and do this. Which is amazing that he says this because they thought it was such a big thing that God couldn't do it. Now, without God, they think it's an easy thing. Ah, we're just going to go do this thing. It's a little bit like the legalism that we have. We could never gain righteousness on our own. That's why we're separated from God. But we think if somehow if we live off a checklist, then that'll be better. Like, like that's going to make it easier. If I, if I check these boxes, if I do these things, if I pray these words, or if I go to church this many times, or if I give enough money to this charity, then somehow that's going to be Okay, it's going to make right what I could never make right in the first place, which is why I got in this mess. Yeah, our best efforts are worthless without the Lord. In presumption, they went up to do without God what they were afraid to do with God. 
They somehow thought that they had the strength in themselves to do what God had promised to do for them. They failed to trust God, but then to try to make up for it, they acted as if it would be an easy thing. Though their fear of it had been much bigger than their faith in the Lord. And they chose once again to trust in themselves, which was the very thing that got them into this mess in the first place. When we try to achieve righteousness through our own willpower, our moral rectitude, it's foolishness. And inevitably ends in disaster. It is again a lack of faith trying to do for ourselves what God has promised to do for us. Unless, <clears throat> excuse me, unless we are trusting him to do what we cannot, our effort is wasted. And what we think is righteousness is actually sin. First two verses of Psalm 127 tell us that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen keep watch in vain. It's only if the Lord is in it that it matters. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. In John 15, as Jesus calls himself the true vine, in verses 4 to 6, he says this, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10 point out that we are dead in our sin apart from Christ. Dead people don't make much effort. That's how it works. It doesn't say we're sick, and, and so we kind of limp along until someone gives us a boost, and God gives us little, you know, little juice here. Holy Spirit, activate! And has all this silliness that that we get all fired up about foolishness. But the reality is, we're dead, and we have zero hope. We cannot get it right. Period. But. God, who is rich in mercy, he did it for us. It's by grace we're saved, through faith, trusting in that, putting our hope in that grace. And even the faith, even that ability to see it and want it comes from him. So there's no room for boasting. This is the reality, our best efforts are worthless without the Lord. They're actually insulting to him. Lastly, see that the key to God's promises is always God's presence. The key to God's promises is always God's presence. The blessings of God are the results of a relationship with God. That principle is universal. It has always been true. It will never not be true. This is the point. The key to God's promises is always God's presence. 
It's not just the point of this story. It's the point of everything. God created us for a relationship with him. Sin separates us from God and destroys any hope for relationship with the Holy One. Religion tries really hard to find a way to have that relationship. Religion is all about trying to get to God, but it's not something our efforts can achieve. Even, excuse me, even trying to earn it is an insult and affront to the holiness and glory of God. Sin can't be removed by keeping the law or doing penance or good deeds. That's the bad news. But the good news, the gospel, is that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever places their hope in him would not face eternity separated from God, but rather have eternal life. God demonstrated his love by sending Christ into the world to be our substitute and payment for our sins. Not because we were worth it, but specifically because we never could be. He sent his son while we were yet sinners. And the one who had no sin was made sin on our behalf that we might become God's own righteousness according to his amazing grace, simply by trusting him, not by any righteous acts that we've done. It's according to his mercy that he saved us. You looking for a better life? Do you know that you need something different, but you think you need to clean up your life before turning to the Lord? Are you wrestling with doubts about your own salvation because you think there's something you need to do better? Are you trying to make up for your past sins? Guys, that's the whole point of today's message. Disaster is inevitable when we pursue God's blessings by our own efforts. What God wants, what he demands is faith. Trusting him to be who he is. Choosing to place all our hope on his provision, Jesus Christ. Without him, we can do nothing. And anything we could do apart from him is actually sin. Since the relationship with him is the whole issue. They blew it in this story just as so many of us and so many around the world blow it because we want to pursue righteousness that makes sense to our brain rather than the righteousness by faith that God gives us. Since they did not know the righteousness of God, that righteousness that is by faith from first to last, and sought to establish their own by their good deeds and penance. They did not submit to God's righteousness. If you're in a position today where you have not submitted to God's righteousness, 
or you have and yet you are not. You've recognized that you are saved by grace through faith, but you still keep putting yourself back in the driver's seat, trying to make up for your sins, trying to fix what's broken through your own efforts. You will inevitably face disaster. Let it go. Trust him. Stop trying to force your way into heaven and just rest in him. Let the one who loves you most love you best by being satisfied with the provision he offers. So satisfied that you are rejoicing always because you've been given life in Christ that you could never earn on your own. That, my friends, is a reason to be eternally thankful. Let's pray. Father God, we are overwhelmed by your presence. Father, if we're not overwhelmed by your presence, then we have not experienced it. We haven't seen you. We haven't known you. But we can't come near to you and be aloof. We don't see any of that in Scripture. As unholy people to come before the Holy One, it is it is overwhelming and, and even devastating. And Lord, I pray that, that anyone hearing me right now who has not come to you in utter surrender face down crawling on their belly in the dirt Lord if we haven't humbled ourselves and given ourselves to you then I pray right now that you would do whatever is required to break that hard shell of our hearts to make us receptive until we finally give up on trying to do this thing our way. That we might say, Lord, I'm yours. Save me. And put our whole hope on Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, the life, knowing that no one comes to you except through him. And Father, for those of us who are struggling even as saved people who have entered into that relationship with the constant guilt of trying to make up for the past. Lord, jerk us out of that foolishness. Jerk us awake and then cause us to rest knowing that Jesus has already paid it all. And the path that we thought would bring us life only led us to the grave. Father, we adore you. We rejoice in you. We give you all glory and honor because you are worthy and all we have is Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Stand for a closing song, please.